Well, I must say that I lived much of that time with 24-hour guards, uh, armed police living in the house uh, 24 hours a day. My children uh, were young. They grew up most of their life always with police, gunmen in the house to, to protect us against um, the heavies of organised crime. That was Bob Bottom, who was both a journalist and a source of scoops for many other investigative reporters. Hi, I'm Bill Birnbauer, the CEO of Democracy's Watchdogs. I'm joined today by Mike Smith, who worked very closely with Bob on some huge stories. Mike is a former editor of The Age and president of Democracy's Watchdogs. Hi, Mike. Can you tell us a bit more about Bob Bottom? Hello, Bill. Bob Bottom was um, one of the bravest journalists I ever came across. He, um, he was in fear of his life for much of his career, and he had nowhere to hide. Even war correspondents get R&R to get out of the, uh, out of the action every now and again. It was because Bob trawled the cesspool of New South Wales corruption for the best part of 25 years. The Age called this web of corruption a network of influence. It involved corrupt politicians, lawyers, old-style crooks, and uh, even a couple of judges and magistrates. It was riddled with corruption in New South Wales, and Bob was there to expose it. He came across some extraordinary evidence of this corruption, and a lot of the players in this network of influence wanted him silenced. Even uh, the Rand government even passed legislation that would have put him in jail for possessing illegal New South Wales police tapes that implicated some very senior members of the New South Wales society. But Bob... Uh, he could have easily stepped away and um, and walked away and uh, and got out of danger, but he was determined to continue to expose this corruption, um, much to his own detriment and um, and, and 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 threats to his uh, to his safety. And even when he had no paid employment as a journalist, he would help many journalists get scoop after scoop on New South Wales corruption. And his stories and the stories he helped uh, other journalists with eventually led to a cleaning up of New South Wales, a couple of royal commissions, a couple of judicial inquiries, uh, a few um, senior police uh, thrown into jail, and lots of prosecutions. And the New South Wales is a much better place um, for Bob Bottom's work in that um, last part of the 20th century. He certainly was extremely and quite extraordinarily uh, brave. Uh, do you have any uh, personal reflections or um, experiences working with Bob, uh, particularly when he was at the age? Well, he was a he was a very gentle soul, uh, like a like a teddy bear, and uh, he seemed sometimes um, vulnerable. Um, but um, you know, he was a vicious investigative journalist. Uh, you know, I think he. I think he's reluctant, um, or it's very difficult for him to form instant friendships. But uh, once he was uh, once he was happy with the people he was dealing with, um, he became very loyal. And uh, but he was always looking over his shoulder. And so was his so was his wife. I mean, we can't um, ignore the importance and relevance of uh, of his wife, who, who who backed him all the way, and I think gave him the sort of support that enabled him to, um, to do what he did. 
Thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, some great reflections. And uh, we often forget that uh, these journalists, uh, b- though they're brave, have, have families and children and um, are concerned for them. Uh, here's my interview uh, with Bob Bottom. I think, listeners, uh, you'll really like it. And um, bye for now. You started your journalism career in Broken Hill in the 1960s and had an immediate impact. What, what actually happened? Well, Broken Hill was one of the richest cities around the world at the time with its mining. And uh, it was a sort of uh, exempt from a lot of New South Wales laws. It was, it was one of the highest sources of revenue for the New South Wales government. And it was a, 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 a city run by the unions. And, uh, and among other things, it ended up with uh, uh, 24-hour hotels, uh, SP bookmaking shops in the main street in the suburbs, uh, and then uh, uh, brothels, and uh, then ultimately uh, two up two up schools. Uh, in fact, today they've got a, a, one legal, but anyway. But then they set up the first American casino type uh, uh, business in in uh, in Broken Hill. I exposed it in the bulletin called Behind the Barrier, and uh, it created the first official investigation by authorities into police corruption in New South Wales, acknowledged in a report in recent times produced in the New South Wales Parliament, nominating all the inquiries since 1963, and that was my cause. And uh, so that triggered a situation where I used to do the odd exposés on Broken Hill. And but you learned pretty quickly in Broken Hill the power, all about power. Oh, there's no uh, risk on that. Union power, you were black banned, you That's couldn't right. go into a local pub. What, right. what else happened? Oh, I was black banned and, and whatnot, and, uh, but weirdly, they, the unions then put a fine on me. And because everyone had to be a member of the union, you couldn't work in Broken Hill, if, otherwise women couldn't work, you know, married women and that. But uh, again, from a journalistic point of view, the Journalists Association at that time came out to write, well, they paid my fine, <laughs> so the, uh, the unions accepted it and, and that they eventually lifted the ban. Uh, but no, I was targeted by them uh, from time to time, but I just, I learned a lot at Broken Hill, dealing with power at its, at its most organised. And uh, so when I later uh, went to Sydney and then you know, I was in Melbourne too and you know, I've been in Queensland, I had a, a you know a fairly old thing about background knowledge of how to deal with power, but quite often uh, you were also the source to many um, journalists on information about organised crime. Um, how did that actually work, and who were you working for? Well, I would have to say at times. Uh, more than half of my inc- uh, incoming information went to other journalists. And in fact, to the extent that throughout the, uh, in the 1980s in particular, I was, uh, uh, as you know, uh, writing uh, as an investigative journalist for The Age in Melbourne, but I was then also engaged um, by the Sydney Morning Herald, and my role there was really to inform their other investigative journalists, not so much to write for the Herald, although I did, or I'd write for both, but to uh, uh, go to Sydney two days a week to inform journalists of not only information, but uh, to give them advice on certain stories to pursue and whatnot. That's a unique role in Australian journalism, isn't it? 
fairly unique because some of the big exposés in Australia that led to even inquiries, I often played a part behind the scenes. Sometimes it was acknowledged, it didn't matter to me, but uh, yeah, I, I uh, had a fair part in f some you know, pretty notable journalists. I don't want to push you too much, but were you a, a conduit, perhaps, between some of the journalists and some of the um, enforcement authorities? Uh, is that how it worked? Well, one of the things that my advantage was that when I started to do investigative journalism, it was in the 1960s, a lot of people didn't trust the police, and uh, I tended to be sought out even by police, the honest ones, and then as a result of some of my work and others, they set up crime intelligence units and that they were um, duplicated in all states and then became federal. And my main sources for journalism were not ordinary police. They were uh, police intelligence um, officers and police. And I was a very rare um, person for them. They didn't generally give it to anyone else. So if there was something very secretive or to be revealed in the public interest, those agencies would tend to come to me uh, and give, get advice on uh, what, you know, how to release it and whatnot. And uh, I would often release it to other journalists rather than just do it myself. So you're trusted by the police and mm. trusted by the journalists? That's it. And uh, so I was the, I was the, the, the sort of the, yeah, uh, the gateway to uh, release it. And that, that's sort of gone on even in um, even recent years at times, some if they want to do something, uh, um, I'll pass it on to someone. Now we know journalists have got egos, so a lot of the uh, the way they wrote up those stories, they didn't say that it came from you. It suggested it came from their own sources, but you could live with that. I, I could, I can live with it. Uh, I didn't, ask, if, if, I didn't ask for acknowledgement, but I must say that in some cases, and I think you really know, may know this, that some of them, of course, made a point privately to suggest that I'd never given it to them, but, but, uh, but at least they were serving the public interest and I supported them anyway. Apart from your time with uh, journalists, you're also instrumental in setting up um, royal commissions, commissions of inquiry, um, how did those come about? I exposed the fact that uh, organised crime had changed in Australia, it had become modernised. Anyway, in came the organised prostitution with massage parlours and everything. In came SP, SP uh, networks and uh, um, then, then the return of the drug trade in the 60s. So um, that became uh, pretty um, influential for the, for the future. And uh, um, in doing that, I was only able to uncover that because I got some very trusted sources in the police and uh, unlike say a police roundsman or whatnot, I, I was uh, able to make contacts with some honest police and that set a, a sort of a basis for a network that continued for decades. And how did you survive financially? Were you paid by the media organisations? For much of my career I had been. I worked originally for the uh, Daily and Sunday Telegraphs under the Packer Empire. And then uh, um, I, we started the first Royal Commission into organised crime uh, in Australia. It was the um, Moffat Royal Commission. That exposed organised crime in a modern sense and its links with the Mafia of the United States. And uh, as a result of threats and all sorts of pressures on me throughout that Royal I was their first major witness. Um, I, after the Royal Commission, I decided to, to take a break. 
and get out of the limp. I, well, I must say that I lived for much of that time with 24-hour guards, uh, armed police living in the house uh, 24 hours a day. My children uh, were young. They grew up most of their right life always with police gun, uh, gunmen in the house to, to protect us against um, the heavies of organised crime. So after the uh, Moffat Commission that period, I went uh, back to my hometown of Broken Hill in western New South Wales and uh, I owned a newspaper there. And then I came back involved again, back in Sydney, and I was uh, uh, funding my own operations and led to future things, but, it, but it, from time to time I either worked for the major papers, the Age, Sydney Morning Herald, but more particularly the Bulletin magazine, and, uh, and in subsequent years uh, at one stage for the Australian and uh, other, other papers. And of course some of my articles used to appear all over, around the world, particularly in America and Europe, yeah. And you've been involved in giving evidence or working with uh, quite a number of commissions of inquiry and Royal Commission? Overall, uh, I've been involved in 18 Royal Commission, Special Commissions of Inquiries, and uh, um, 18 of them. Um, I think about seven of them are Royal Commissions. I helped start several of them. Sometimes I'd be involved because of my knowledge, but um, they, they, they were quite a big um, pressure on me. Sometimes I'd be quizzed for days by all sorts of lawyers on behalf of all sorts of crims and police and whatnot to corrupt people, but uh, it, it was worthwhile. You're risking your life at times. Uh, definitely, and of course, uh, uh, one of the things is that I got some resentments from some uh, police uh, uh, because I also um, t took a role in uh, advocating for the establishment of Australia for better facilities to pursue organised crime and corruption. Mm. It, uh, it was based on a report I wrote that the first um, uh, crime commissions were set up in Australia. That was uh, federally, it was the National Crime Authority, which became the Australian Crime Commission, da da da. And then in New South Wales, uh, the New South Wales Crime Commission, and in uh, Queensland, they set up a crime commission. I wrote a report for the government there. And so I've been involved in the establishment a lot of those. And in fact, I. Only several years, oh no, 2009 I published a book called Fighting Organised Crime which I gave just my history of setting up these organisations in Australia, yeah. Delving into organised crime is, is quite a risky way to earn a living. Um, why did you do it and did you ever feel seriously under threat? I did feel seriously under threat at times and that, that continued from the uh, 70s through to the... Um, early 90s and in fact I might tell you that see we had uh, not just uh, uh, federal police protection that's what we originally had but one of the things that uh, was really welcoming for me was that I couldn't trust uh, some of the New South Wales police and Victorian police the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence used to hire a plane fly from Melbourne land at Bankstown Airport in Sydney and come and surround my house to protect me on one occasion, they actually arrested a New South Wales policeman climbing through a window of our house. Anyway, he got away with it later because he said he was just uh, got a, he was acting on a prompt to uh, try and see some of my files to see if they'd uh, been pinched from his operation, which was just nonsense, but he got off for that. So we've always had backup. In fact, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, it's hard to get away from, but I'm away from it now, thankfully. What about these days, organised crime and corruption? Do you think it's any less than 
what you found in the earlier days? No, I think that uh, organised crime today is still a very much a, a national threat. International syndicates are now actually operating in Australia in concert with their bases overseas and uh, they're behind a lot of the drug imports which are extra extraordinarily high in, in Australia at the moment. And according to the latest um, estimates by uh, uh, you know, federal authorities, that's the uh, um, Australian um, Criminal Intelligence Commission, uh, is that uh, the total cost of organised crime in Australia has gone up to $47 billion a year. That's mind-boggling. And do you think journalists are covering that adequately? Uh, not currently, no. Um, some journalists are doing a very good job as investigative journalists, but uh, the organised crime uh, picture I don't think is getting the uh, work that I used to devote to it. But, but not just on my own, but along with um, a series of other journalists who did very good work. Why is that? I don't know. I think that it's partly because of um, authorities uh, have a different approach. I don't think that uh, they're uh, giving as much attention to um, exposing the reality of some of it, uh, except that they do make drug, a lot of drug seizures, you know, and. Uh, they get publicity, but I think that to really uh, tackle the heart of organised crime, I think that uh, uh, they're more likely to do it if there's more media pressure. And why do you think the media isn't paying due attention? Uh, I don't think that they've got access that I was luckily able to get at that time. And uh, so, uh, see, one of the things that uh, happened early in my career, when I worked for The Telegraph and we started the first report on organised crime in Australia. Um, I uh, was actually um, uh, forced within the office, uh, within the newspaper of the Tel Daily Telegram, not to, I wasn't able to associate with the uh, police roundsmen, let alone deal with ordinary police and had to be done spe in a special fashion. And today, unfortunately, I don't think there's any um, journalists who are seeking out those intelligence operatives who could help. What's the background to the age tapes? Uh, those uh, tapes were uh, uh, done illegally by the New South Wales Police and part of the mystery about how I used to know so much was that for many years before we released the age tapes in February 1984, for um, you know probably a decade before then I'd been leaked material from uh, which uh, phone taps done by the New South Wales Police who didn't have the, the power at those days, they didn't have the legality. The release of the age tapes followed the, the uh, use by me of some f legal phone taps called spendthrift. They were by the Federal Police in 1983 and in which they covered all sorts of things, but in particular those tapes um, ultimately led to... Uh, I, I, I uh, briefed journalists on them originally and then the authorities, federal and state, started to react against them. So I then came out and acknowledged that I had these tapes. The tapes I started to leak particularly were called Spendthrift and they dealt with federal things, but in particular they covered um, corruption by a minister of the New South Wales government called Rex Jackson. He was subsequently jailed. And uh, then um, um, ultimately, after that, there was a special commission of inquiry and uh, I must tell you that um, 
ultimately uh, 60 police were charged with corruption charges over those tapes. But the AIDS tapes dealt with uh, a series of tapes done by New South Wales Police on, on the Mr Biggs mainly of organised crime. And in the course of it, as, as well recorded in Australia, um, then a High Court judge, Lionel Murphy, in a form of minister, he got um, unearthed in that and uh, was convicted at one stage and acquitted of corruption and died before, just as the, as the government was setting up a special new inquiry into it. But uh, those uh, tapes covered all aspects of organised crime. So the age tapes were about over 500 pages of transcript. Um, and almost 4,000 taped conversations. Right. You got hold of those. Right. Went down to the age. Yes. Gave them to Lindsay Murdoch and David Wilson That's and right. then spent some time working with them. I worked with them and I must pay tribute to them. They did it uh, professionally. Uh, not only they accepted them, and uh, uh, but they actually sought... Uh, uh, to make them, to, to also, you know, get some verification that they're authentic. Neville Rann had a meeting of the Parliament of New South Wales, he was the Premier of New South Wales, got the Parliament to assemble on a Friday and they went to four o'clock on a Saturday morning and passed special legislation which was aimed at having me uh, fined and jailed for, because they knew I had possession of these tapes. And uh, anyway, when I, I flew to Melbourne on the Monday morning and... Uh, when my wife got home, I dropped me off at, after dropping me off the airport. The police commissioner rang, and he was coming out to arrest me, so he missed me. But I didn't, then stayed on in Melbourne, and uh, helped them uh, as much as I could. And ultimately, um, after that, I then rejoined the Ages uh, um, investigation team, which was run then by David Wilson and. Uh, um, um, Lindsay Murdoch, who both did a very good job, and um, some weird things happen with police fo within police forces. Similarly, sometimes within journalism, I have to say that uh, at sometimes when I've had threats on my life, at some journalists have, have done things uh, on behalf of organised crime figures, you know, or corrupt police from the police rounds type thing, because I never dealt with normal police generally. No, but like what? Right, no, I dealt with intelligence. Yeah, yeah, source. but what did the journalists do? Uh, well, there were some journalists who were known to be crooks in Sydney. In fact, um, to the extent that uh, um, they've even got named later about helping Lenny McPherson, the Mr Big of Sydney, and George Freeman, another Mr Big of Sydney, and others in attacking me. And I always remember a, a book I released on organised... One of the books I released on, released on organised time. I gave it to a, a journalist in Sydney, and it was on uh, the, uh, how the mafia got away with the murder of Donald McKay and Griffith. And um, uh, the journalist I trusted the most, Sydney Morning Herald, gave that book to Al Grasby. He's a, he was a, a corrupt uh, a former member of... Uh, ALP in the, in the um, federal parliament, but uh, anyway, uh, they tried to block the book, you know. Uh, so you could never, you know, sure, sure who you could trust. So after the age tapes were published, Neville Rann said they were phony. That's Gareth right. Evans also attacked yeah, them. Yeah. So there was a lot of emphasis on the illegality rather than the content. Yeah. It seems to be a constant ploy to deflect attention from the findings. They, they've done that on other occasions too, but in, that one, in this case in particular, 
Uh, it was amazing because ultimately they were forced to set up a Royal Commission run by a former policeman and a lawyer called Donald Stewart. And uh, he authenticated the tapes totally, right. you know, and uh, even had the police give evidence who'd done the, 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 the uh, bugging and whatnot. And uh, so that all became history later. You've said that criminals often fear journalists more than police. Could you delve into that? Well, there's no risk on that because uh, when I f uh, f uh, wrote the first significant historical piece for the Daily Telegraph about organised crime that caused, uh, ultimately caused the Moffat Royal Commission, the first organised uh, Royal Commission into organised crime, uh, uh, I. Um, mentioned uh, uh, the Mr Big of Sydney uh, being behind uh, organised crime taking over registered clubs and that, that's a big industry in New South Wales and anyway uh, the Mr Big, uh, Lanny McPherson rang me and uh, uh, he was trying to be nice at first but he then threatened me you know um, but he was uh, obviously uh, uh, a lot of it's been quoted since, but he, he was more worried about what I was doing than worrying about the police, because the police didn't intervene at, at all at that stage, and, and, and that the Royal Commission uncovered the fact that the police were covering up and working with Lenny on something. Mm. But subsequent to that, I've had various calls from other organised crime figures, and um, even when my life was threatened and picked up on phone taps and that, on two occasions, Lenny McPherson actually intervened to stop them doing it because he was fearful of what would happen to my files that I had. He was always fearful I had files that would probably bring them undone. And uh, uh, that was, um, you know, just one, one of the things that uh, another criminal did on another occasion, had intervened on a case where I was going to be kidnapped or something. Yeah. Good Lord. Okay. Were you worried about your family? Um... We were worried and they, um, my children grew up in a very worrying period because we had the police living in the house all the time. Oh, not all the time, but mm -hmm. for many years. And uh, uh, even in recent time, or no, not so recent, some years ago now, when I actually retired and I moved to a coastal place in, in New South Wales, and I don't say I never nominate, in all the commissions of inquiry, I've never been able to allow my, anyone to run my address, right? Anyway, but in this case, I moved there under no idea anyone could know where I was at this stage. Within two weeks, I got a call from, on behalf of Stan the Man Smith. He was probably the second fiercest uh, Mr. Mr. Big in Sydney, and he just wanted to pass on a message to me. He knew I was back in New South Wales, hoping I wouldn't do anything silly and cause any trouble, and uh, suggested uh, I continue to look after my health and I can go walking each day this way or that one. He knew where I was walking every day just to let me know I was under surveillance and uh, you know, no, they, they don't forget. Hi, it's Bill Birnbauer back with you. If you enjoyed that podcast and want to hear more interviews with top investigative journalists, go to democracieswatchdogs.org and locate the podcasts tab. On the site, you can watch video interviews with all the journalists featured in these podcasts. You can subscribe to our podcast and also to our newsletter for alerts about forthcoming interviews and our latest news. And please help us produce more interviews by supporting our work. 
As a registered non-profit organisation, we depend entirely on your support. Just go to democracieswatchdogs.org, press the donate button and give us whatever you can afford. Every bit helps. It all goes into production and is greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening and bye for now.